After taking a much-needed hiatus, we are back with all new episodes of the Women's Energy Network podcast. This is Sally Hollingston, and today my co-host, Sarah Dardowski, and I get to chat with Melissa Hooper, who's with The Energy People, a recruitment firm based in Midland, Texas. In addition to today's episode, where Melissa talks about the job market, she was also a contributor to our August 2022 Empower Magazine issue. Her article, titled Life Hacks, dove into helpful tools to manage your stress. And let's be honest... Who's not stressed by the fact that we're already at Q4? The episode notes will have the link to this article, but in the meantime, take a listen to today's conversation. And if you're a job seeker, make sure to hang on until the end when Melissa hands out her top five tips for showing your best self. My name is Cara Byrne, and I'm the 2022 Global President of the Women's Energy Network, aka WEN. WEN is focused on developing a community of energy professionals across the world who are connected locally and networked globally. This podcast is yet another way for WEN to feature our talented members in the energy community. I hope you can learn something new and enjoy your time with us today. So today's guest is Melissa Hooper, who has more than 18 years of experience in human resources and people operations with a specialization in recruiting, compensation, and analytics. Her passion is supporting employees and leaders with what they need to be as efficient, empowering, and profitable as possible. Melissa's belief is that HR should be strategic, focused, and practical by providing solutions and tools that improve the company's bottom line and the employee experience. Melissa, thanks for jumping on with us today. We're talking about one of my favorite things, which is talent. Um, so excited to kind of hear your story a little bit more, if you can kind of just really start to fill us in on how you got to where you are. So yes, yeah, so I have about 18 years of experience. Um, I have a really interesting kind of early career uh, story where I graduated in May of 2008, right as the economy was crashing in a really profitable career um, with a degree in international relations with an emphasis on international development. So of course, naturally, there were no jobs <laughs> when I graduated. And so I took um, you know, long story short, I, you know, I kind of took the first thing I could get. It didn't, it didn't work out. And then I kind of spent the next six months in the middle of, you know, the great recession, trying to figure out what the hell I was going to do with my life. And this great career that I had just, you know, kind of started to miss out on because the the train was leaving the station and I wasn't on it. And so I, I got into um, an international development company doing recruiting because at that point, I think I would have just like swept the floors. And um, it turns out that I have a great passion for it and a, a great talent for it as well. And so from there, um, you know, I went and kind of built teams and did recruiting all over the world um, in such, you know, locations like Kabul, Afghanistan and Doha and, um, you know, a lot of other kind of, you know, countries around the world that might, you know, be a little bit challenging. So I, I kind of tease people when, um, you know, when they're saying, oh, this recruit, recruit is so hard or it's so hard to find people. And I'm like, well, you know, we were able to hire people in Afghanistan in the provinces who were illiterate, didn't speak the language and, you know, there was no electricity. So um, I say that to, you know, kind of say that there, where there's a will, there's a way. Um, and so that's kind of professionally how I 
you know, got into recruiting and, and why I stay here because it's, it just is such a dynamic and powerful force, um, both in business and in our society. And whilst I almost stopped you and you were talking to, it's like we lived doppelganger lives. I also had my degree in international relations, international development, graduated grad school in 07. So even worse, two degrees, extra debt in a very interesting topic and no jobs, right? Yes. Oh my gosh. I, uh, I, I kind of laugh at my like young Melissa because I'm like, what did you like? Did you even think about like what you were going to do with it when you graduated? I mean, it was really cool doing it, but my gosh. Thinking about where we are now, specific to energy, in one word, how would you describe the current energy market situation? Dynamic. I mean, I think in the last, it's kind of the uh, fracking revolution has hit the industry. I, I think we have not ever had in the current iteration of the energy market, a a market where macroeconomic and geopolitical trends impacted us so greatly. And so in a way it's kind of, it's, we're feeling it newly. So like in the 1970s, clearly we had, you know, the um, like inflation and, you know, all these crazy things that were happening all over the world, but it felt different because we had kind of like the traditional plays, the traditional way of doing things. Um, we didn't have this, you know, this powerhouse um, right here in the United States that really could give us a little bit more um, control and ability to say things on an international stage that maybe we would have said with a softer voice. So it's it's very dynamic, both in terms of, you know, kind of the, the macro pieces, but also, I mean, if you look historically at like January of 2020, right, right before the pandemic, you know, it was $67 a barrel, I think. And I know someone else smarter out there is going to tell me that I'm wrong or I'm a little off, which is okay. But I hope we can take the point, which is the average rig count in the U.S. today at $88 a barrel is 75 rigs less than that time period. So there's something going on here. And, you know, I'm sure where y'all are at, you might be feeling it too, but it feels like things should be busier than they are booming crazier than they are, but there seems to be a little bit of hesitation or, um, you know, maybe just kind of reserved, um, kind of, you know, economic forecasting on the, on the part of the energy industry right now, because we really don't know what's happening because there's so many things at play. How does it feel from the talent perspective that you're seeing? Does it feel like there is hiring or are there people doing more with less when it comes to people or, you know, are we not doing those big hiring booms again? Like, what does it feel like? Is there more competition? Yeah. So it's so interesting because we're seeing all of it. So we're seeing, uh, you know, skilled labor that is in a shortage, like we've never seen it before. We are seeing, you know, so kind of those are feeling like the hiring booms. We're seeing, um, you know, kind of, you know, folks struggling to find jobs where maybe the markets move beyond it. We have a technification in the oil field that at the same time is causing structural unemployment in some areas. And then we're seeing it be a candidate's market at the same time. So we're really, it's it's almost like a, a, a fruit basket turnover um, in, in the recruiting world where we're seeing a lot of uh, dynamics that would, you know, typically have been excluded you know, the other one. So if we have a hiring boom, we're not typically kind of pulling back, but we're seeing all those kind of happen in the same space. When we talk about competition and stuff, you know, I like to think of um, the demographics, the actual individual, right? Who who is that data point? And if we're, we're looking at to the questions we kind of have, you know, is it a good employer important or a good employee? Like what's, what's the better, the better fit. But I also think, 
you know, have the values of that employee and the values of that company changed? And how is that affecting whether or not they're able to retain or recruit talent? Uh, yes, to all of that. So, you know, kind of who to the question, who's more in demand, good employers or good employees? It is a candidate's market right now. So the natural rate of unemployment hovers around 4.4%, um, which sounds like a really boring statistic. But if you just think about it, like that's where the uh, labor supply and the labor demand are at perfect equilibrium. And if you look at the stats for the energy industry, and particularly, you know, some of the places out here in the Permian Basin or, you know, where there's oil activity, you'll see that it's below that number. And so candidates can afford to be choosy. And I would also say that, you know, none of us are the same, you know, after the pandemic and people are really examining, you know, what, like, what do I want an employer? What am I doing with my life? Do I enjoy this? You know, why am I, you know, working these crazy hours? Um, you know, what, is, what does, you know, work-life balance look like? And this is a conversation that's been coming a long time uh, since the 1950s when our purchasing power, you know, our family purchasing power has been going down uh, since the 1950s. A lot of people don't know that because it feels like we're more prosperous. That's only because women went into the workforce. Well, and then to kind of your point about people taking time to evaluate what they want to do, there was an article I read um, from the skim. And one of the things they said is that Twitter's remorse is real. People that quit during the pandemic says, according to one survey, 43% of pandemic quitters felt they were better off at their old job. So the people that are trying to reevaluate, do you see more people doing that while they're at their current job and then looking for the next one? Or is it all of these people that quit because they're just like, I don't like it? Or Yeah, so I have a few thoughts on that. So I think we have to think about traditionally what has been seen as women's work. So women's work historically has been taking care of children, taking care of the elderly. If you think about what were kind of like even our, our parents, right? Like what were like the jobs that were appropriate for women, teachers, secretaries, nurses. And so I think in the pandemic, the women's work really came to the forefront. And so the women were working. Um, many of them were working in those uh, professions that were hardest hit. All of a sudden they're having to do home child care and maybe they're, you know, there was a, you know, a sick, you know, parent or, you know, sick spouse or child. And that falls to women um, in terms of our gender norms and, and, and kind of our, our culture out here. And so I think we saw women getting overwhelmed at a rate that, you know, maybe men didn't because we've been doing the silent work for decades in addition to having careers. And so I think what it did is it really just kind of overstressed the system um, to the point where, you know, something finally broke, the dam broke. And so I think you're seeing people who just probably really couldn't handle it anymore. And the grass is never greener. I always tell folks this in recruiting, you don't get paid for what you do, you get paid for what you put up with. And so I think people have been reevaluating, you know, what am I willing to put up with in my life. And it's hard to get that perspective too, because if, unless you're in a role like I am and you see things across industries or across professions or levels or roles, you, you really don't have the perspective that these are, you know, endemic problems. You know, if you move companies, it's not going to solve, you know, some of these other pieces that, um, you know, like the wage gap or, you know, maybe having to, you know, consistently work over 40 hours a week. And so that's endemic to our work culture. And that's the thing we're grappling with. 
you kind of alluded to it a little bit that we, you know, like the she session, which is what we went through. Is that something that you feel that we are still in? And then could you also talk about some of the other things that have been kind of coined, like the great resignation, the great reconfiguration and the great re, there's a lot of words, re- great reevaluation. <laughs> I think we're still trying to figure out what the hell happened or is happening. If I can, like, It's the WTF moment, right? And um, yes, so it's it's the she sh- the she session, but also if you think about it, okay, so like let's think about from a family perspective. So we've talked about what is co- like historically considered women's work, and then if you look at pay disparity and that the average woman is making eighty seven cents to the man's dollar. When I am in a family setting and we're having to have an economic discussion of who's going to take care of the kids or even childcare is so expensive, it doesn't make sense for both of us to work. It is much easier from an economic perspective to say, hey, you know, the female's, you know, role in the female's, um, you know, wage is less than the male. So that's just a simple math. Right. And so I think it, I think it goes beyond the she session. Um, and I think we're, you know, I think great resignation, great reconfiguration, great reevaluation, you know, all of that. Um, the great regret, which is, you know, regretting, <laughs> you know, leaving your role. But essentially what it is, is something's fundamentally broken in our world of work and how we we view and support women who are working and who have multiple roles and multiple hats. And I think that for the first time ever, we have a, you know, a population just demographically where we don't have enough bodies coming up underneath in the, the pre the, I guess the next generation. So we have this baby boomer bubble, if you will, uh, you know, B3, triple B, and um, we don't have enough workers coming up underneath that. We're going to have working women who are going to now be the sandwich generation. And it's a thing where, you know, you have young kids, you got your spouse, and then you have your aging parents and your sandwich between the younger and the older generation. So I think that, um, you know, as women have become more important economically and into the financial survival of American families. Um, you know, we're, we're in a really different spot than we have been previously. The generational issues that kind of, I feel like keep coming up. We talk about boomers um, maybe not retiring and how that doesn't give opportunity for folks to move up in advance and to gain that institutional knowledge, especially since oil and gas, we know that's been a big issue. We talked about big crew change for over 10 years, still hasn't happened. Now there's less jobs. And the same is true for utility space. I think people don't think about the utility space as much in energy, but they are facing massive, massive uh, retirements. And even and it's even more critical now as we look at, to move into electrification. So, you know, the talent pool is now competing with a larger energy market and that talent pool is much smaller. So what are some of the concerns or, or, or what are you hearing from uh, companies that try to strategize to, to fill those roles? Well, first of all, I think, you know, companies have to get to a point where they realize that this is actually happening. It's not just a point in time. You know, I can't find as many people or people don't want to work. Actually, if you look at the employment numbers, we're back to this, the same employment numbers as we were pre-pandemic. So that's not a thing. So there's something else going on here. And, you know, there's, there's actually quite a few things happening at the same time. So it's a little bit of a perfect storm, but we've really kind of, you know, the whole, you know, generational competition is frustrating to me because we have a lot to learn from each other, all of us. And we have, you know, like you said, the great shift change, 
unprecedented in history. We have five generations in the workplace at the same time. So like sit and think about that. And no other time, even prehistoric, have we ever lived this long, one, and have we ever had an organized society that, you know, could have an economy that would be able to support the healthcare and folks in older generations continuing to work. So that in and of itself is unique to us right here, right now, today, that's super unique. And, you know, we, we have different kind of generational cultures. And so we kind of, we're seeing that, that clash. And instead of focusing on what unites us, which is quite a bit, we're focusing on what divides us. I mean, we have a great opportunity here to transition all of that baby boomer knowledge, you know, over to either AI or or younger generations. I mean, AI is going to continual, continually be a thing, um, in our workforce as we don't have enough bodies to, you know, replace the work being done. You know, maybe it's menial, maybe it's dangerous, but we just don't have that. So someone's going to have to train the AI. Someone's going to have to train, you know, create those programs and help condense, you know, roles. And so that's going to be the older generations and that, you know, that's a revered role. Um, but also the, the technology that wave of the future is held in the hands of the younger generations. And so instead of having this push and pull, I wish we could have a uniting of minds and a willingness to work together. And I don't see the, the, the boomers as like holding on to jobs or preventing younger generations from having opportunities. What I see is a, a, a structural competency and skill gap in our society that we are not talking about. And like when you say that the skill gap is that, what is that from? Is it from us not educating the next generation enough? So I think in a way we... We have educated the the next generations, I think the best we knew how, but we have in other countries, there is an emphasis on vocations. And so what we're talking about in the energy industry and utilities and all of that are really vocational um, trainings. It used to be you would, you know, um, you know, you'd have a you know father that was an electrician and you'd have a son and he would train him up or a carpenter, someone who built houses and they train up their, you know, you know, their, their children and, and how to do that. But what's happened is with our modern education system, I know we grew up in kind of like the four by four curriculum. They're correcting that now, but we have a, a, a gap of folks with just kind of practical know-how in vocational spaces. And that's the thing that is so interesting, especially in the recruiting world is, you know, where do you go to find someone who has, you know, the ability to do kind of some basic electrical plumbing and a little bit of construction can pour a concrete pad. Cause that's what a lot of folks are needing, but it's not out there. So some of me says like, yes, I'm a huge, um, uh, trades supporter. And I think that's key in showing people that that is a good life, that you don't have to have this college degree necessarily to like go out and be something and to be valued right by society. Like these are solid skills you can have, but then I almost feel like we're solving a little bit of our own problems. If we start to elevate the trades a little bit more, talk about how you can make, but maybe talk about them in terms that Gen Z is listening to, which is right? This, you can soft living, you make your own calendar, you're an electrician, you're a welder, you're what have you, you you get to decide what you do. And then you have a lot of time to do what you want, right? There's a lot of security built into that, but a a lot of control as well. So I don't know, I feel like some of those, those pieces are going to be shored up just with some generations. But I guess I'm curious, you know, you talk about what employees want and what employers want, like, so how, how does, 
speaking to some of the generational pieces, can they answer some of those questions? Yeah, um, I, I definitely think that the ability to work remote and be more flexible is, you know, the pandemic was terrible and that goes without saying, but we, you know, there's silver linings too. And, you know, not all of, I think employers realize some folks can be effective um, in jobs by working remote or being more flexible. And I also think employees started to value going into the workplace a little bit and having that community and seeing that collaboration. And so that's just a really good example of some of the things that, um, you know, we're seeing kind of in terms of a give and a take. And, you know, even in terms of like compensation, for example, we're seeing, you know, companies say, hey, like I can only pay you X, but if you get more efficient with what you're doing, let's do a 35 hour work week. So I, I think that th- that that given that take is is going to be more important. And, um, you know, some of the companies are, you know, either offering additional benefits or offering kind of more fringe benefits that are harder to quantify, right? Yeah, I, I think so. And I guess I want to circle back to to the point that you, you made when we talked about like the values, right? The values of the employee and the values of the company. And we, you know, we see we see a lot of um you know marketing out there, one piece of it. But how how much of it are you seeing like in talent that you you feel like it's true that the employees are finding and moving to companies that they feel like represent their value? Uh, I think it's happening a lot. Um, but what I think we have to examine, like, what does that mean to reflect an employee's values, right? And that tends to come from the people element of companies, which is the company culture, um, what other employees are saying about it. And, you know, the, the, the biggest trend that I see amongst the, my clients and in the industry, and honestly, the demand that we're seeing is, um, greater training, people training for managers. Just think about it. People don't quit companies. They quit their manager that's, you know, email bombing them on a Saturday night when they're having their kid's birthday party. And so getting some more of that emotional intelligence and kind of boundaries around. So we had all this technology. We lost our boundaries. Um, It kind of got a little unhealthy there for a while. And putting some of that back in place where people can feel safe to have, you know, their home life without fear, you know, frankly, you know, negative effects at work is going to be important. Um, but also a lot of managers, especially in our industry, aren't elevated because they're the, the best people, you know, person. They're elevated because they're the best technical expert. And sometimes those two things are drastically different. And so we have to look at either giving, you know, folks additional tools. I mean, we're taught to balance a, you know, a checkbook and how to do trigonometry in high school, but why aren't we taught about like regulating our emotions and how to be people, um, how to relate, how to have, you know, difficult conversations, you know, um, boundaries, you know, all of that emotional intelligence piece we, no one has, you know, we have to learn it. How do you feel about um, transparency and compensation? Is it good for recruiting? Is it bad? Is it good for employers or employees? Kind of where do you see this topic? Yeah, you know, I don't see it as a good thing or a bad thing. I see it as a thing. Um, And the reason why I say that is it's addressing what is a trend for us, which is, I mean, as we mentioned earlier, you know, women in general, and, you know, as you break it down into different, you know, um, 
race categories, it, it also changes too, right? It's just facts that there is a, a pay discrepancy about 13% between women and men and between other groups. Um, in fact, there was something called the EEO1 component two. And for, for those of y'all who are not into the boring HR stuff, it's the equal employment um, opportunity. So it's, it's kind of run by the, the Department of Labor. And it basically, uh, if you're a company over a certain size, you have to submit you're basically your, your roster with, you know, what folks are getting paid. Um, and a few years ago, there was something called component two, which required a, a, an even deeper dive. And so it, what wound up happening was in theory, right. It, it sounded like a great thing to kind of get insight and to see who was paying what, and if there was a discrepancy, but the thing is, is that we don't have a standard job description across all industries for what, a lease operator does or what a pumper does. And so what wound up happening is it became super cumbersome on the businesses to report it, very expensive, very cumbersome. And then we got all this data that's not always apples to apples, right? So when we're looking at pay, it has to be apples to apples. So I do think it's positive that states and, and, and localities are looking at this pay gap and you know trying to ensure that, you know, we have, you know, equal opportunity, right? Because no one has the right to someone else's, you know, free labor or, or you know, anything like that, right? That's kind of a tenant of, you know, capitalism. We, but we, it is under our, you know, kind of our capitalist society to make sure that we all have the opportunity for that, right? And so, to me, when we're talking about mandatory disclosure, I don't think mandatory anything in the world of work is ever an easy thing because what winds up happening, what we think is going to do like happen through the mandate sometimes doesn't. Right. So what may be happening, and I'm sure over time, you know, this will kind of come out is that, you know, one people who might, you know, have applied for a job and have been a great fit and had a great career path may not be applying for it because, you know, maybe their skill sets a little bit, you know, different, right? So I'm, I'm always a fan of getting to the table to have that negotiation. Um, and I, I, don't, I, I don't ever think it's a, a, a good thing either not to be able to have that conversation. So I've, I've posted roles in the past where we got a candidate that had a great experience. We interviewed them. They weren't our pick, but we were like, hey, you'd be great over here. And then that role had a different you know, pay scale. Sometimes it was greater. And so you, it, we're trying to kind of, I think, over prescribe a solution for something that's super dynamic. I like, I, I guess I like the part that it makes talent has more, feels like maybe talent has a little bit more insight into hiring. Cause I feel like hiring can be a little bit less than transparent a lot of times. It certainly can be. And it's, you know, it's tricky, right? Because a lot of what these mandates are doing are accomplished in the phone screen anyways, where someone can have a dialogue about, well, hey, is there a level two? Or, you know, I have this experience, you know, how would that impact my pay? We're not ever able to have those conversations. And so I find that people are making career decisions, you know, basically based on pay, but they may not have the full picture. They may not have looked at the benefits package and had, you know, childcare paid for, you know, all of your healthcare paid for, which in the end would have resulted in a better offer than someone down the road that gave you, you know, $5,000 more. So I think I'm a fan of, you know, additional information and empowering job searchers. I'm not 
I'm not sold that this is the way, but I think we need to continue to have the dialogue on pay disparity and, you know, what that means and and how to fix it. Um, You know, one, one practical way that, you know, anyone listening to this podcast can do to impact that is when people, you know, especially as women, when they ask, um, you know, what, what your salary expectations are, you know, I always, you know, try to say commiserate with, you know, with my work experience. Um, because what if, you know, I do have something that's really special that someone else wouldn't have, but it would benefit the role. Like I can't negotiate that until I have a seat at the table and I have an offer that we're talking about. And so, um, I think there's ways to do that. And, and women, you know, part of the pay disparity is that women, um, are more team players and aren't, always going to ask for more or advocate for themselves more. And so those are two things that are directly correlated to additional pay that anyone listening to this podcast can do anytime. So what would you tell a candidate who's looking for roles? Like maybe who's listening, how, how can they really understand their value? You know, I think in any interview, it's always important to, to come with your own questions. And, you know, I would ask questions about, you know, what is, you know, what does it mean to be in this role in this team? How does the company view this? Talk to me about someone who's been successful in this role and promoted. Um, you know, and that's kind of what they bring to the table. But in terms of intrinsic career value and how I'm pricing myself against the market, you know, I think trying to research what is out there in terms of of pay for your role um, is important, but understand too, that all of the glass doors and, you know, everything out there, that's not a survey based pay pay component is all subjective. Right. And a lot of people who post there are really mad about things. And so they're not always going to have the most favorable, you know, things to say. So there's kind of a negative bias. Um, There is a space um, that exists and I don't know who would do this but I, I'm just going to throw it out there into the universe is that there, there is a need for some independent reviews for can that candidates can get access to. Right. So when I did compensation um, in a previous life, like I had access to surveys that had the actual real-time payroll data, the average person can't access that. So is it incumbent on, you know, some of the trade organizations or, you know, things like that to maybe do some of these surveys to put it out there to say, Hey, to attract talent to this, you know, you can make 65 to, you know, $80,000 a year, you know, being a lease operator. How do we think about jobs and roles, you know, and filling those when we're looking at productivity? matters so much. I mean, we've even heard about, you know, companies who install softwares, productivity is so critical. Obviously that can be a hindrance sometimes, depending on what your role is, if, you know, being watched for clicks or what you're doing, like how how much is productivity versus like the outcome of the company Are companies thinking more long-term to kind of keep talent and like how I can just better serve my people and kind of my overall mission. Um, or are they still very much focused on the productivity of their individual? employee? And are those in conflict, I guess? Productivity for any company is key because if the company is not profitable and if your role is not contributing to the bottom line, which is so cliche, but it's so true, it's business, it's not charity. And it, and that goes both ways, then that's an issue. Then 
then your role is at risk for being eliminated or um, maybe you're not a good fit for the role, right? So that's a business decision. I think when we start micromanaging and being big brother on employees, that to me is a symptom of something bigger. And I don't think it's a it's a good best practice. I think that it is used in lieu of good management technique. It's it's used in lieu of good company culture and some of these softer things that that actually really matter. You know, you can measure someone's clicks, but I can just sit here and click my mouse or I can shake my my mouse that I look like I'm working on teams. You know, that's not the point. And so I think being deliverable and outcome driven is really the best way forward, you know, when asked that question. I think that goes back to your point of where should we be focusing? And I do think it's on training folks. I do think it's training the managers and giving the skills and being able to think through what their team members need, right. To get that best business outcome. Well, and HR has historically, um, and this is my opinion, but I do think that it is substantiated, um, been relegated as a back office admin function. Like when you look at the reporting structures for a lot of HR departments, they go through legal, they go through finance, they go through accounting. So if you're a, a, a leader of a company and your HR function does not report in directly to you, what are you doing? Your people are your number one asset, your number one resource, and they're in short supply. So basically what you're saying by not prioritizing your people operations or giving that your HR function a a direct line of access to you, what you're saying is that your people are, are less important than your financial reports. Your people are less important than the liability that they represent to you. And I'm going to challenge every leader out there to rethink how HR reports into them. Those are questions I had. I'm excited. I feel like we go down a whole bunch of different rabbit holes if we wanted to, but I think Sally would get mad on the editing side. (laughs) Um, Well, no, I just wanted, as we wrap up the interview, I just wanted to maybe end with your top five suggestions for people looking for jobs. So for the candidates, um, what are the top five things they can do right now, whether they're looking or just wanting to update in case they start looking? The first is to control your physiology when interviewing. Um, A lot of people, um, when they're phone screening or whatever, they're excited, they're nervous, um, and their physiology gets out of control. And what I mean by that is your heart starts to race. And it has been scientifically proven if your heart gets us over a certain number of beats per minute, you cannot hear the other person what they're saying. And so then you have a terrible interview. Maybe you didn't answer the question. You know, maybe you were talking so fast. Maybe you were talking over. And that happens when, um, you know, our physiology gets overexcited. And so I think really kind of being aware of your heart rate and kind of you know, breathing and knowing what to do in the moment, if you get to that place will really help. The second um, would be to, um, to do some, I'm going to call it mindfulness exercises. And what I mean by that, and I still have to work on this for myself, but what I mean by that is we can get caught up a lot in our own, what we think that we should be to this world. 
what we think is going to make us happy happy? Is it going up the career ladder? Is it going to be, you know, I just hate this job. I'm exhausted. I'm over, you know, burned out and I'm going to quit. Is it really that, or do you just need a vacation? And so a lot of folks don't give themselves brain space to think about and analyze where they are in their lives and their careers. Um, And that's where we're seeing kind of some folks maybe regretting quitting or, you know, folks who are just super burned out um, and and not taking care of themselves. And so I would say kind of getting some mindfulness in your search and really thinking about what it is that you want. The other, you know, three that I have would be um, to really think about your cadence of speech Um, particularly since so much is done over the phone or, you know, over video. Um, Sometimes when we're talking in person and then we're talking over these devices, it it can get mushy. So um, maybe kind of working on, you know, some of that dictation and making sure that when you're in an environment with pressure, um, you can make yourself, you know, heard clearly. Uh, the fourth thing that I would do is I would think about some thoughtful questions that I would ask the hiring panel. I cannot tell you how many times I've been in an interview. We get to the end of it and the candidate does not ask a single question. One, as an employer, I'm thinking like, are you really that interested in this job? If there's nothing you have to ask us, right? Did you do your homework? Are you interested? But two, as a person, I'm like, oh man, there's so many things you need to know. Uh, Why aren't you asking more questions? Like, you know, who is the most successful person that you've ever managed? You know, what would you say your company culture is like? you know, what do you value in, in an employee? And so that'll kind of give you an insight into that fit piece that we were talking about earlier. And then the last piece that I would throw out there is to think about your career as a journey and not a destination. So we talked a little bit earlier about how like we, you and I both have like international development (laughs) degrees and then here we are. Right. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you have to always be learning. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of that, whether it is a new program, whether it is a new, um, you know, just way of thinking or taking notes, you have to always be learning. You really have to make that intentional and don't ever think that, you know, because you achieved all these things in the past that, you know, that that's enough, but make the journey enjoyable. Thank you for listening. We hope you join us next time. Until then, be safe and power on. What's the worst interview you've ever had to conduct with someone? Oh my gosh. The weirdest thing that happened or anything. Yeah, I was going to say something that really made it horrible. uh, Awkward, overly awkward. So um, I was doing campus recruiting. And, um, which for everybody it's, you know, it's, it's folks that are just graduating from, you know, college. So we're all still trying to figure out what, what we're doing. And so this person, you know, came in, they interviewed, I introduced them to the manager, you know, I kind of stepped out, um, hold on. There's a, I was like, what's that now? (laughs) Great. Um, So there was a, so it, you know, it's a, early career person who's just graduating and, you know, I, I bring them up to the, you know, 
the floor. I introduce them and they sit down and they interview and um, they're about 15 minutes into the interview. And then this other person comes running into the lobby disheveled and just like totally panicked, like, oh my God, I'm here for my interview. And what I realized is that the kiddo that was actually interviewing with the management team (laughs) was on the wrong floor and was in the building for another interview. So we were just like interviewing this, you know, this kid, (laughs) this like rando that just like walked in off the street and this other kid just so happened to be late. So 